0: With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, you and I are in two very different climates. Now, I was in Florida most of this week. I'm I'm back in Georgia. But just looking at the video, uh, I still have a tank top on um, and it looks like you have a sweater. Looks like you got about three or four uh, layers on, brother. Can can you explain to me what's going on in the windy city of Chicago,
1: man? Uh, spring is just uh, not showing up, doc. It is. It's like forty degrees. No sun outside. Got my heater on, my sweater, and my friend is here in his tank top. So I'm a little jealous right now. So if, if sure. you all hear me being a little bit, uh, you know, uh, a little cold on the
0: podcast today. It's because I'm a little cold. <laughs> it's real. The The, the struggle is uh, is real in Chicago, but we, we'll be praying for all our Chicago folks that spring actually shows up sometime soon because that cannot be uh, pretty still going through all that. So hopefully it warms up a little bit. And uh, and honestly, it's been a little chilly here sometimes. Most of the times it's it's been warming up in high 60s, you know, 70s, stuff like that. Um. So, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll all get there, hopefully. I know Chicago gets pretty hot during the summer as well. Something that we talked about, man, and, and I predicted that this was going to happen even a couple games out. The season is over for the, the Los Angeles Lakers. I've seen so many memes and so much commentary saying this is probably the most disappointing season for that uh, franchise ever. Um, I will not dispute that. I think it's shameful with all that they did, all the guys they got rid of, all the guys they brought in to end up in this situation is just uh, unbelievable to me. I would love to hear what some of the fans have to say, but it's, you know, it's just heartbreaking uh, to see these guys going through. Like the the biggest heartbreak to me, though, Chris, is what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about in this introduction (laughs) if we can't talk about how bad uh, the Lakers are? And now the season is over (laughs) early. At least the least they could have done for us. Is giving us the opportunity to talk bad about them in the playoffs, but we won't be getting that opportunity.
1: I see. I, I'm going to challenge you on that. I think this is uh it's fair game every round of the playoffs, all the way to the championship, to mention that the Lakers are not
0: in it. Hmm. There's something there. You might you might be onto something with that. I mean, they're I they're out, mentioned. man. I mean, bro, you got a guy who some people are trying to call the goat, which we know the, the goat really resided in in, in Chicago. And you guys didn't even, not, well, back up a little bit. Back in the day, you didn't even have a play in, you just had the playoffs. Now they got this play in, and they didn't even make it to the play in. Whew. Hard times in Los Angeles. It's incredible. Very hard times. So, Um, hey, man, I'm I'm sure I'm sure we have some uh, listeners who are still mourning uh, that situation. So we'll we'll let it go for now. But we may bring it up again during the playoffs, as Chris has suggested. Uh, In other news, as you know, as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Looking so forward to some of the partnerships that we have with them. Uh, Great stuff coming up. uh, A lot of good work going on. And we got to get into it, man. This is an episode that many people have been waiting for. So we might as well. You might as well grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat. But like a Christian. Well, Chris, the uh, people have spoken. The audience in no uncertain terms has made it clear that they want us the church politics podcast crew to weigh in on the gender identity, sex education issue immediately. Um, They have made that very clear uh, by hitting us up uh, ad nauseum on social media um, and letting us know that it's time for us to speak into this issue. Um, And so here we are, right? Y'all know that we do not run or dodge the tough issues, but it is our commitment Um, Along with talking about the tough issues, which this one in particular isn't one that I just love to talk about, but it's one that we will address. But in addition to being committed to addressing the tough issues and not running from those issues as a a podcast and as an organization, uh, we're also committed to not giving you hot takes. On important issues like this, uh, we don't want to just give you knee-jerk re- knee-jerk reactions. We want to know where the conversation is. Make sure we're able to do our homework and give you something that can edify the church or at least inform the church about what's going on. So that's where we are. Um, and and the truth is, man, we, we've touched on this issue before. Like this isn't the first time that we've talked about it. Uh, I will admit that it's become a bigger issue. Ever since Florida passed or really ever since Florida started talking about its parental rights and education bill. Now, you might be scratching your head because you've never heard that title. Well, that's the official title of the legislation. However, what you've probably heard is the don't say gay bill. Don't say gay is how the leftward groups, including the mainstream media, branded this legislation very quickly. Okay. Now, for me, going into kind of learning and doing my due diligence when it comes to this matter, I didn't really have a you know a, a dog in, in the fight. Um, not a huge fan, fan of DeSantis, don't have any reason to be uh, uh, tied to the other side. I really just wanted to see what was going on. And after reading the bill, um, I would have to say, and, and and I'd love somebody who reads the bill to, to tell me differently. After reading the bill, I'd have to say that the name is misleading that the name is a intentional misnomer. Um, But here's what the bill basically says. It basically says that sex education, whether it be about heterosexual sex, homosexual sex, and so on, can't be taught to kindergarten through third grade students. That's basically what it says. Now, some people say it's not as precise as it could be, and that may be fair. Uh, But the general idea Seems like common sense to me. Um, it doesn't seem like something. It seems like a no brainer. It doesn't seem like something that would become super controversial. But in the American culture war, the most sensible things, um, the most benign things, the most, uh, 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 you know, the the most obvious things can become outrageous culture war fodder. And again, here we are now. Why was this necessary? Somebody, someone might be asking. Well, there's a concern that there are some educators that are trying to indoctrinate or the word that some people are using or is groom, that they're trying to groom young kids with gender ideology and hide it from parents. Some of this, I think, is is, is a little overblown, but I won't say the whole thing is overblown. As we've discussed, On this podcast before, there are some people on the left, some of them educators who see parents as the bad guys and believe that it's their job to save kids from parents who aren't sufficiently uh, secular progressive. You know, those big, bad conservative parents that take Judeo Christian values and uh, teach them to their kids. Now They you know, children must be saved from those parents. Um, There are also jurisdictions whose policy is to allow counselors and teachers to initiate the changing of pronouns and kids gender identification without telling parents. Um, There's some strong evidence that this is happening. How much it's happening, I think, is where probably the, the debate is. But this concern isn't imaginary. Um, And I think you can even tell by the reaction of the left to this bill that something has to be, you know, the bill wouldn't be a big deal unless something uh, was there. All right. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider this to be imaginary. Now, I I don't want to mislead you. We're not going to take a deep dive into the Florida law on this episode. But I am thinking about covering it more thoroughly in a future episode. So we're not going to completely just walk away from it and leave it there. Uh, I might even bring in some special guests to talk about this uh, even even further. So I would just tell you to stay tuned uh, to the church politics podcast, because this issue is something that we will talk about again. There's just so many aspects of it. We want to cover different aspects of it with different episodes. All right. Now, on this episode, what I do want to discuss is how the church is reacting to the sex education issue, whether or not it's overreacting. Maybe some would say that it's underreacting or maybe it's a little bit of both based on what Christian circle you're in. Now, I personally addressed this matter in a tweet earlier this week. Um, and it's one of, you know, one of my tweets that that I'd never expect to get a, to get a lot of a, a, a likes or retweets because it's one of those tweets that's hard. But that tweet will serve as the frame for this episode. All right. And, and so let me just tell you what I said in that tweet. Let me let me get this pull this tweet up. Right. This, that'll be we'll be talking about this particular subject based on uh, what what I said in that tweet. The tweet says this, the gender identity uh, sex ed conversation highlights a major divide in the church. On one side, you have Christians who tend to be alarmist and overly broad with their accusations. On the other side, uh, you have folks who act unconcerned. They only acknowledge racism, sexism, and the church's internal sins. Both groups seem to lack discernment right now. The latter group is a reaction to the former. To distinguish themselves, they've become too cool and winsome to take any threat from pop culture seriously. The former only sees threats and enemies in society. The latter is far too self-conscious about its reputation in pop culture. It ignores the perils of a permissive culture in America. This gender identity uh, sex ed conversation requires a very serious yet measured response from the church. But neither group seems prepared to act appropriately. So that, that was my tweet. That was my general perspective on the matter. Now, before we dig into it, uh, let me say this, and and I, and I, I I try to say this before uh, we enter into this conversation all the time. It's so important that we address the, this issue um, thoughtfully and compassionately. I don't think that Christians can talk about LGBT issues in good faith without admitting how bad our witness has been historically when it comes to loving the people who identify with the LGBT community. In my opinion, as a general matter, we've shown more condemnation and we've shown more fear than love and compassion and protection when it comes to this conversation. And that has to change. So when you see uh, LGBT activists and they seem mean and they seem malicious. We might want to consider that. It could be our reflection staring back at us. It might be good for us and healthy for us to consider that they're just responding in kind after years of mistreatment, after years of being ignored. Now, in my opinion, a Christian leader who hasn't repented or lamented or cried over the treatment of these image bearers isn't ready to lead on this particular issue. And here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kids thinking that no one in their entire church loves them because everybody's focused on their brokenness rather than their humanity. I'm talking about families kicking kids out of the house into the streets with nowhere to go because of how they identify or what they're struggling with. I'm talking about our brothers dying alone. Because the stigma of their disease was too much for the church to love them through. We need to think about that. We need to let that marinate. And we need to internalize it. If that history doesn't break your heart, then I got some bad news for you. Your heart has been hardened. And you got a lot of self-examination to do. This isn't a self-examination that I've had to do myself and continue to do myself. It's real. For some, though, for some, I think that history leads them to affirm LGBT behavior and lifestyles that the Bible clearly forbids. I don't think that's an option. I think that's understandable. I think that's an understandable response. But it's not faithful. I think it's a mistaken response. As the Anne campaign talks about over and over again, you can act with compassion without denying timeless biblical convictions. And I've talked to a lot of people who are very serious about this issue, who have reached out and some even who are affirming that are really just trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the kind and compassionate thing. And I and I understand that and I can appreciate that. But one thing that happens when you run into this conversation with those folks. Is they can't give you Bible to to support it, not for real, not anything other than very, very general things, not not any real theology, and they can't give you any science to support it. right. It's just sentiment. And when we rely just purely on sentiment and we push the Bible aside and we push reality aside and we push even general revelation aside, we run into trouble, even if it feels like the right thing to do. All right. Now, the gender identity sex education conversation seems to be consuming a lot of the other topics uh, going on in the public square right now. Depending on who you're listening to, who you follow, this is talked about quite a bit. And it's really interesting because the far left, along with corporate America and the media, seem to be giving a blank check to LGBT activists in general. It's like whatever theory y'all come up with, whatever y'all want to push right now, we're behind you. And I guess, you know, maybe it's good for branding. Maybe it's good for business. But I think it's I see it as really dangerous. Right. Because this conversation is kind of skipping parts of the public discourse and just getting pushed to the forefront and given how, given how these groups are tipping the scales in the public discourse on this issue, you would think that public opinion would be clearly on their side, that, that, that this conversation would be over. Well, I've got some information that might surprise you. You you, you might not expect what you're about to hear because based on the polls, based on the polls that I've seen, Um, that just simply isn't the case that the public isn't squarely on that side of the issue. According to a public opinion strategies poll, when Americans see the actual language of the Florida law, it wins support by a two to one margin. Let me say that again. When Americans see the actual language of the Florida law, it wins support by a two to one margin. Sixty one percent of Americans support it based on the language, not based on the talking point or the buzzword or don't say guarantee that the actual language. Only twenty six percent of Americans disapprove of the actual language. And check this out. Fifty eight percent of independents approve of the bill. Here's the kicker. Fifty five percent of Democrats approve of the of, of the language in the bill. Almost 70% of parents are supportive of it. 70% of Republicans are supportive of it. And a poll by Interactive Polls showed very similar results just a few weeks ago. All right. So what I take from these polls, and I'm sure there will be others in the future, and we'll try to cover those too, Americans just aren't going for it. It just doesn't make sense. With all the things that kids need to learn they don't need to be trying to process inappropriate theories about sex and gender at the age of five, six, seven, eight. It's just not what they need to be thinking about. They need to be learning their math. They need to be learning other things. They don't need to be taken captive by wondering whether they're a boy or a girl when this is pretty clear. Right. The other thing that's, that's just come out is there are studies that show and we'll try to put this in the in the notes. There are studies that show that even when given puberty blockers, even when, you know, going through other processes, it hasn't helped the mental health of children. So, a lot of the folks who are supporting this stuff are doing it again just based on sentiment, but not based on the science, not based on the actual impact that it's having on kids. All right. Now, the question that we want to answer in this particular episode is how is the church responding to this issue? And in my tweet, I'm, I mentioned two primary responses. The first was the alarmist response. And the second was the nonchalant response. So let's start off with the alarmist response. All right. That's that's the first one I want to deal with. It's the first one that I referred to in my tweet. The alarmist response primarily comes from a culture that sees the outside world as completely, completely a, a negative space, right? A, a negative space, a a a bad space full of threats, right? When you go out into the world, all you're going to get is negative things and we need to protect ourselves from every aspect of the world because it's the world, the church is good. The world is the absolute enemy in all ways, right? That's kind of where this alarmist response comes from. And I want to be fair because the Bible does kind of create this dichotomy in a way, right? Um, And I'm not going to question that, right? So there's, there's something to it. The Bible does say don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, the love of the father is not in them. That's first John uh, 2 15. The Bible does say be not conformed to the world. So there is something about the world that Christians need to avoid and be aware of. These instructions need to be taken seriously. And, and I'm not going to push it up. I'm not going to push against that at all. But they shouldn't be read in isolation. Right. We don't just take part. You know, we just don't take certain scriptures out the Bible and just read them as if uh, they stand alone without any kind of context or, or that they don't that they shouldn't be interpreted from other scripture. Scripture is interpreted through scripture. Right. So while we need to take those instructions very seriously, we shouldn't read them in isolation. We have to read them with an understanding of common grace. We have to read them with an understanding of what it means and the reason and the purpose that we are not supposed to live in fear. We have to read them with an understanding of how God can use the world and non-believers to do good. That's how we need to read that scripture. And when we read it that way, we begin to discover that while there is a brokenness in the world that we need to stay away from, uh, whereas we need to be following God and not following what's in the world. That doesn't mean that we need to be afraid or paranoid of every single thing that's going on in the world. We need to be vigilant. We need to be discerning. But we shouldn't have this alarmist, paranoid response to every single thing that's going on in the world. I think that's very important for us to understand. The alarmist culture, when it's separated from a thorough understanding of the Bible, And when it's separated from really what amounts to critical thinking, it leads us into this paranoia. It leads us into all these conspiracy theories. It leads us to these conspiracy theories where we begin to believe that there's some clandestine pedophile ring around every corner, even if we don't have any evidence to prove it. Even if we have nothing to demonstrate that's true, we begin to believe these things. And this is why uh, the QAnon conspiracy theories, stuff like that. This is why those things thrived in some Christian circles, because there's so much suspicion of the world without really being discerning about it, that we just jump and grasp anything that we can hold on to that proves our suspicion that the world is a a terrible place. And there's terrible things that are going on in the world, but we have to be discerning and not just jumping to conclusions. One of the excesses of the alarmist culture on this issue is the very sloppy way that the alarmist culture labels so many people mislabels so many people to broadly label so many people, right? In this particular instance, you get this labeling, this very broad labeling of pro pedophilia, right? If you support Katanji Brown Jackson, you're pro pedophilia, right? If you've ever watched a Disney movie, you're pro pedophilia. Um, and it's just not helpful. I'll be honest with you. I, I think it's sinful, right? When you throw people into a box, or you put labels on people um, that they don't really fit into, say they believe things that they don't really believe. You're doing something wrong. We can't we can't just jump to that conclusion. The other thing that you're doing is you're pushing away potential allies. I just gave you the number, which those numbers show us that there are people outside of Christianity that believe that this type of education for young kids is a bad idea. But instead of actually talking to those allies and seeing how we can work together, what we do is we start shooting at them and we start labeling them and, and putting them in groups that they don't even necessarily want to be in. And so we really have to watch that. We have to be careful about how we go about it. Paranoia is not a fruit of the spirit, right? Right we can do better. We can be more measured in how we addressed this issue and how we address other people who may not agree with us on everything, but it doesn't mean that they're uh, supportive of pedophilia. You got to stop just throwing out labels and just throwing out accusations so easily. All right. We we really have to focus in on that. Um, all that being said, though, Chris, um, just because you're paranoid And just because you can tend to be alarmist doesn't mean that you're always wrong. It would be wrong to discount all these concerns and warnings just because some of the groups who are pushing them out, some of the groups who are leading the way tend to overdo it. Sometimes we do need to sound the alarm. Sometimes something nefarious is going on and it needs to be called out and it needs to be addressed in a very serious manner. Sometimes when we call something out and people say that we're just overreacting, whatever, sometimes it's just gaslighting. And we need to continue to push and continue to say what we have to say to make people aware of what's going on. I'll end there and just let you take it, Chris.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's a a very important conversation for us to be having uh, in this moment uh, in our culture. Uh, When I think about. The question that we're trying to deal with in this particular episode, how is the church uh, responding and reacting to this moment? I always sort of ask the question, why is the church responding and reacting uh, in this moment? Because what that suggests is that we have not been leading on this issue. And, you know, I, I think it would be a completely different situation if we could legitimately say that it was the church that stepped up and said, hey, for a long time in the church and in the society, there is this community of people with whom we may not agree. With whom we think you know there are significant uh, uh, departures from what the scriptures teach. But there's this community of people who have been poorly treated. Inside and outside of the church, we need to do something about that. Uh, if we brought that conversation forward, then we would control uh, that conversation a little bit more and not be so reactionary to it. I also think about the just the overall discipleship of the of the church. I, I think that you know we maybe have not had a thorough conversation around what is the Christian sexual ethic? Where, where are, you know, sort of like the systematic approaches to like here's what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality uh, and gender and here's why and here's the sort of like consistent teaching from the scripture uh, and what it means versus just having a, a conversation in the church, you know, about six or seven things that we sort of should not do And not having a thorough conversation about proactively, what is the Christian sex ethic and why does the scripture lead us in the way that it does? So that even if parents uh, and community members hear conversation about what we should be teaching our first graders and second graders about sex and sexuality, the the common rank and file Christian can have a a more thought out worldview on this versus just, you know, drinking in a bunch of stuff from the culture and, you know, trying to bump that up against the things that I learned that I'm not supposed to do in church, but not really having like a, a philosophy like we have on a lot of other areas of life. Um, and and being strongly discipled in this particular context. And then the last thing that I will say uh, in terms of reacting on, on this point uh, and where we have not led is when it comes to just like, and this, this is not blanket, you know, everything that I'm saying, there are exceptions, right? Uh, So I'm not saying that this is every person in every space, but, I wonder if we sort of lock in too much on the issue of homosexuality um, as if that is the only sort of sexual behavior that is divergent from biblical teaching, right? And if, if you act like homosexuality is the only sexual sin, it's very easy for the church then to end up reacting a lot to something that seems to be happening on the outside, even though there's plenty of that happening on the inside too. But there are other things that, that we teach are not right that we don't react so strongly to when we see it in the culture, uh, when we see it, you know, sort of demonstrate it, maybe not taught in curriculum, but demonstrate it before uh, our children. And do we have that same uh, reaction uh, to it? And so then my question is, is this is this a is this a reaction against a group of people, or is it a a genuine zeal for a biblical standard? Um, and all of these, you know, I, I, I pray that those who are listening will hear this not as accusation against the church. Uh, I'm a pastor. Um, I I don't get down with folks you know who just want to sit around and criticize the church and say what the church is doing wrong so this is not accusation and criticism against the church it's just invitation for uh, a moment of reflection uh, and sort of self um, analysis as we engage culture in this really important yet very difficult conversation we we just want to make sure that when we come to it we have asked ourselves tough questions um, so that we're bringing a, a genuineness uh, to the conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, ideally, what we see this as is edification, right? This is this is an examination of the church so that we can improve. Uh, this is all done in love, which hopefully folks that listen to this show already know that. Uh, but we, we, we certainly need to examine ourselves and critique the church as well. And I think that's what we're doing. One of my other issues with the alarmist stance, even on this particular issue, is you end up bearing false witness. Right. Because when you're overly broad, when you're jumping to conclusions, when you haven't done the research, when you're accusing people of being things that they're not or supporting things that they don't. That's not OK. <laughs> right. That That's sinful. So not, a, you know, it, it's simple. That's the biggest problem. But the other problem is it's not good for your cause. So if this is a problem, which I do think it is, if it needs to be addressed, if it is urgent, then being erratic. Crying wolf and doing this on every single issue means that when an issue really is this big and needs to be an urgent, urgent response, that your cause is going to be hurt because your witness has been off and you've just been throwing things around in a very sloppy way. And I think alarmism happens to be very sloppy because it's it, it assumes too much and it paints with too broad of a brush. Uh, it, it I think it's good for Christians. This is an issue. I think parental rights are important. They need to be addressed, especially when it comes to sex education. I'm with that. But we need to be more measured if we're going to be effective. Because one of the things that I've seen, and this has even come back on the AND campaign, I'm like, what are y'all talking about? The alarmist pushes away potential ally. Because when you start making accusations, you start throwing out labels that don't fit. Someone who actually agrees with you, and you can look at the, the numbers of people who support the idea of, of kids not hearing this stuff too early on. You got a lot of allies. If you're always shooting at people and your aim is off and you're just, you know, you're just shooting at whoever is not on your side, you're actually losing allies. And there's people who don't speak up just because they don't want to feel like they're on the side of people who aren't very measured in how they respond to things. And so on this issue, I would say that the alarmist, sometimes we do need to sound the alarm. Sometimes the issue is has come to a point where we need to say, Hey, this is, I'm not going to sit here and act like this is nothing, but you still have to be measured and thoughtful and look for allies and make sure that you're not bearing false witness and placing labels on people that aren't accurate. Take us out, Chris.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you've, uh, sort of put it right on. I, I have just continually, uh, sought to remind folks, um, that, uh, Is really in this political moment the voice of moderation that is the the prophetic voice Um, and moderation does not really consist of, you know, being wishy-washy on issues and not knowing what you think and not having any convictions. Uh, Moderation is about knowing what is important and being able to leave the distractions uh, on on the table. Uh, Because I think that you do have here a very real issue uh, that needs to be addressed in a very serious way. Um, But when you get lost in the distraction of name calling, exaggeration and all that type of stuff, you you miss the point of of sort of trying to be salt and light in the culture and lead the, the moment, the situation, the society to a better place i would say it's it's it sucks because it's not always so fun, you know, and you don't get retweeted as often and all that stuff. But it's so important that we wed ourselves to faithfulness in this particular political moment.
0: Yeah, man, it just seems like the alarmism isn't serving us well. And if we want to be effective, there's a better way to go about it. Now, to say that you're passionate or determined or tenacious, that's fine. But some of the things that come along with the alarmism actually are counterproductive we will be right back on the church politics podcast and we are back on the church politics podcast with justin Gibney and reverend christopher butler um so we just talked you know we're talking about this whole uh gender identity uh sex education uh issue Uh, We've just talked about the alarmist response where some people in the church are being very alarmist when it comes to this and actually throwing out accusations that are inaccurate, throwing out broad labels and just putting anybody who doesn't completely agree with them on everything in these boxes that don't actually fit and how sometimes that really just adds up to bearing false witness. But as I mentioned, uh, I believe that there's another response or non-response in the church that that's extremely problematic, too. Um, and that really, I think, in, in in this instance, is really irresponsible. We'll call this other response the nonchalant response. And I believe the non uh, nonchalant response or the non-response, as it is, uh, is an overcorrection of the alarmist culture in Christianity. Uh, the Christians who've become so cool and winsome that. They never really acknowledge any threat outside the church except racism and sexism. When it comes to pop culture, they really don't see much of a threat in it or don't address much of the threat in it. They just want to talk about those two issues and sins within the church. Um, And it seems like they're really just going out of their way to distinguish themselves from the Christians who pop culture makes fun of. They don't want to be considered in that group. And so they fashioned a witness that makes sure that they can't be mistaken for the judgmental, uh, paranoid, Bible-thumping Christian, uh, which I get some of that. But in doing so, they've conceded too much to the world. They've conceded too much to pop culture. And from what I can tell, many of them have blinded themselves to the flaws of secular progressivism. And so sometimes you see people coming out of these very conservative spaces into the more of these progressive spaces and not understanding the the perils that go along with that as well. Right. From what I can tell, many of these folks are primarily focused on the church being the bad guy at all times. So they have seen some of the flaws in the church and some of those flaws are very real. But sometimes. That's not exactly how things are going. We can all admit that that the the church has been the bad guy historically at times or participated on the the wrong side of the conversation. But that shouldn't blind us to the threats of a very permissive society. And and the, the damage that a very permissive society does to children. And does to us. Now, to be clear, when I talk about the church. Within this context, I'm really only talking about Christians with a high view of scripture. I'm talking about Christians with a high Christology. But but when it comes to this nonchalant group. The sad thing is, Chris, it's often unclear whether or not they're affirming of LGBT issues or not. Uh, Some of them appear to think that the ambiguity, that ambiguity on that issue is cute, but it's not really cute. I, I think it's actually unfaithful right it's it's hard to tell where they stand cuz they either don't talk about it at all or they talk about every issue around that to paint you know to make it look like the church is on the wrong side of that too again when you only focus on sexism and racism and those things need to be focused on as you know the and campaign and the church politics podcast points out those issues as well but in this case i don't think it's coincidence that many of these folks don't talk about the issues that popular academics and popular activists frown upon. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, I think that's connected. Because as, as I've said more than once, I believe that they often look to those groups for approval. That they often look to those groups for validation. And that's not a good thing because it causes them, in these instances where they probably do need to say something, it causes them to sit back and say nothing. And if you look around... This group is completely mum on this sex education conversation. Not a word has been spoken as if this issue doesn't have major consequences, but this issue has some very serious implications. And yet, if it doesn't fit within the categories that I've just given you, there's a lot of influencers. There's a lot of folks who are in those circles that won't say anything about it. This nonchalant, this air of you know, I'm not worried about anything that doesn't come out of the church. I'm not worried about anything that doesn't deal with racism and sexism is mistaken. Because I'll say this, I've said it before. I'm not not here to say that this is happening in every school, that every educator is is trying to push this uh, forward. I don't believe that. But this is an urgent issue when you're talking about kids, when you're talking about how they form their identities. And I hope, Folks aren't just worried about it because you get to send your kid to a private school where, you know, they're getting it right. But what about all these other kids that can't afford to do that? And they're going in these schools without any kind of protection from the, the that kind of uh, ideology. I really do believe that this nonchalant approach to these conversations is irresponsible. It lacks vigilance. Uh, and it's very opposition centered. You cannot base your witness off not being like other Christians. Right. I'm going to you. My reaction to something that's going on in society is is not what's right or wrong or what I should do or what I shouldn't do. Or am I making sure that I'm standing against immorality and unrighteousness? No, my, my response is based on not being like those guys over there who everybody makes fun of. Whether I do the right thing or not, I'm more concerned about you not mistaking me for them. Therefore, I'll just sit back and not say anything about this issue that could impact not only Christian children, but but children image bearers all over this country. But we don't want to say anything because we might get mistaken for the wrong kind of Christian. That nonchalant response, I think, is really wrong. And while I agree that the alarmist response probably goes too far. To not say anything about that might be worse in this instance. In fact, I think it is worse in this instance, to not say anything. And I think we really have to examine why we're not saying anything. Is it really for the right reasons? Chris, do you have any commentary on this uh, nonchalant response or non-response to the issue that we've been covering?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... (sighs) If I can be, you know, just a, a touch transparent, um, as as problematic as I think that the alarmist response is, and and trust me, I think that it is incredibly, incredibly problematic. The non-response is the one that that sort of breaks my heart the most, uh, and I think that has to do with the fact that this. It usually is, um, more prevalent in spaces where I spend more time and it is, you know, I would say it's a hundred percent, um, rooted in the opposition based, uh, politics that we talk about so much where we have, uh, So like lowered our understanding of what it means to be uh, political and civically involved uh, to just being against the like the bad guy. So if, you know, a Republican says up, then we say down. Uh, If a conservative says right, then we say left uh, without really applying a biblical analysis uh, a a value-centered um, uh, uh, review of the situation. Uh, we must not be uh, homophobic. We must stand uh, strongly against uh, discrimination, intimidation, abuse, and other forms of neglect against transgender people. Uh, we have to uphold justice and equity in every space and at all times. At the same time, you can do all of those things and still be able to say that right is right and wrong is wrong. And on the question of if we should be teaching, uh, you know, if we should be protecting young children from being over-sexualized, from being, um, groomed toward a a very secular uh, sort of sexual ethic it is clear I think in the in the Bible believing church it's clear when I talk to people Justin even in the uh, in secular society there are a lot of people who have at least some questions about this, the, the speed which, which with which this uh sort of uh thinking and teaching is taking uh root in various places in our education system and other places of our culture. Um and there is a need for courageous leadership for um for for bold voices to step up in the face of tremendous cultural pressure uh and say that right is right and wrong is wrong. Um, and doing so, we have to understand that doing so does not make you a bigot. It does not make you uh, hateful. Yes, people are going to come and say uh, that you are bigoted, that you are hateful, that you uh, don't care um, about you know, transgender people, folks in the... Uh, the broader LGBTQ community, and you're going to face that kind of uh, criticism, but it is not necessarily true just because somebody said it, right? We need to be fierce defenders of justice and uh, freedom and, and equity and all of those things that we believe in so deeply for all people at all times uh, and we can do that and still hold up uh, a standard in in this culture it is it is not equivalent to say that we must not discriminate against a person because of how they identify when they go to apply for a job, to get housing, to seek health care um, and to say that we um, that we should like not be grooming. Uh, you know, second graders and third graders, uh, toward, you know, analyzing their, their gender identity and their, you know, sexual preferences and that type of stuff. I mean, this is, this is not content for second grade and third grade. Um, it's, it's, it's generally over-sexualizing the, uh, a, a, a person at that young age. And there are things that need to be taught in the home, uh, in the churches that we need to be working with parents, there's a huge conversation here. And to enter in that conversation, regardless as to what your critic might say is not the same as to be, as being okay with hate and discrimination and mistreatment uh, in the society. It's not the same. And it takes, it takes discipline. It takes courage. And again, I think it takes a touch of grace. I think that the, The capacity to have this kind of witness in this culture that is begging you and pushing you toward extremism to be able to say, no, I don't want to see people hated. I don't want to see anybody harmed. I don't want to see anybody discriminated against. And yet I don't think that anybody and everybody should be able to come into a second grade classroom uh, and insert their ideology into second grade curriculum. And all of a sudden you have second and third graders trying to wrestle with questions of their, you know, gender identity and sexual identity.
0: So, yeah, man, I I mean, I I think I think you're right. And one of the things that I would point out about this nonchalant response is I think what we really are seeing is a need for approval or or a kind of fear of pop culture being passed off as winsomeness and sophistication. And I'm all for being winsome. I'm all for being thoughtful with how we do stuff. But I think in too many instances, maybe not every instance, but in too many instances, it's really a fear or a need of approval that, that we're kind of passing off for that. I, I had somebody respond to my tweet saying the the best response to this is love. And I said and in my head, I'm saying, well, that's hard to disagree with. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think I agree with you on that. The problem is that it doesn't tell us anything. Right. Uh, the problem is that it, it seems like an intentional avoidance of the tension that we're dealing with. Uh, it, it's like when people say I, I mean, I make and I think this is an important comparison. It's like when people say bring up racial justice and they say just preach the gospel. Well, of course we preach the gospel. But that doesn't tell, that doesn't give us a practical, you know, that what you said in this context doesn't give us a practical response to the suffering of other people that's going on in this very moment, which we know Jesus and God care about. Right. It needs to be more. We, we need to address. You can't avoid that tension. And too many people are trying to avoid that tension. Look, just doing the opposite of what you think evangelicals would do. Is not a it does not show discernment. It doesn't show faithfulness to God. When's the last time for all my nonchalant folks, when's the last time that you really stood up to pop culture? When's the last time that you really. Stood up and said something that you knew popular activists and popular academics wouldn't like. That's important a question to ask, and then I would say, you know, it is about love. But don't you think part of the loving response is making sure that you're protecting children? And here's the tension that a lot of folks who just say, look, I affirm whatever, just be loving and that's it. Whatever you take that to mean, what about the children who are caught up in these situations? That that love and just affirm whatever stuff is very adult centered. It may work for adults, at least in the time being. What does it do for your love for kids and these image bearers? who've got a lot of stuff to deal with and don't need inappropriate conversations coming into the school that they're not ready. They're not equipped to deal with. Chris, you can go ahead and take us out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're trying to look at this on, on, uh, on the level of these two uh, sort of wrong responses. And is it's just the fact that the church is not, has not always been right about everything in culture, but the church is certainly not wrong about everything in the culture. Um, and it is like you, it's like you said, if, if you find that you have developed for yourself a witness and an understanding of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be uh, a biblical believer that always has you on the side of culture.
0: There might be a problem. I mean, the truth is, Chris, that there's some Christians that if you want to know their opinion. You should just go ask secular progressive leaders and then you'll get the opinion, maybe even before they get their own. Uh, And that's just that's just a sad reality. Um, but we'll be right back because we want we don't want to just give you the errors and, and kind of uh, examine the errors. We want to talk a little bit about what a faithful response would look like. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement. And we are back on the church politics podcast. We've been talking about this conversation dealing with Uh, gender identity and uh, sex education. Uh, It's a tough one for the church, but it's certainly one I think Chris and I agree that the church has to weigh in on. Um, And what does that good measured response look like, Chris? I want to throw a few things out there that I I think are going to be important. Number one, we have to be prayerful. Uh, Without prayer, without the Holy Spirit leading us, and I mean this in a real way, we will get this wrong. We've gotten it wrong in the past. Uh, Some of us are getting it wrong presently. We need to come together as a body and pray about this because it's not easy. Uh, We cannot. We cannot look at this issue and not take it very seriously, and just say, "Hey, what'll happen is going to happen." Uh, No, we need to address this issue, and it has to start with prayer. The other thing I would say is continue to be vigilant. You know, if the left wants to make this argument that somehow being um, transparent when it comes to uh, uh, curriculum and all that stuff is a good way to go, that's a terrible idea. We have to be vigilant and know what's going on, not exaggerate what's going on, but have to know what's going on. The other thing is to find allies. We just gave you the number. We just gave you the numbers earlier. There's a lot of Americans who may not be Christian, who may not be conservative or any of that stuff. That just don't think that what the left is trying to do here makes any sense. And so why push away potential allies by overly broad labels and by, again, just bearing false witness and just being sloppy in how we uh, approach people and how we address the issue? Take your time to make sure that we're more concise in how we and how we address these issues. I don't think it's wrong to look to, to legislation. To say, hey, maybe there is some legislative response to this, but guess what? It needs to be concise. It needs to it really needs to be thoughtful if we're going to address this in the right way. That's not an endorsement of any particular legislation, but it's saying there could be a policy response to this conversation. The other thing is to continue to engage school boards, continue to engage teachers and support teachers. You can't treat teachers like they're the every teacher, like they're the enemy. You can't treat every school administrator like they're an enemy. Again, you may have allies there. You may have people where you can have a conversation and get some understanding. We can't automatically see everybody outside the church as your enemy on this particular issue. Take time to learn where people are coming from, to hear people out. And you've got to have compassion. If we walk into this conversation, you may win this battle being mean and ugly and all that stuff, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. And I think the church is finding that out now. You need to be compassionate. There are people who have children. There are people themselves. There are folks who are really going through this in a real way. And if you don't have any compassion with folks who are really going through, then you see where it, you see where you end up. You end up isolated. You end up with nobody understanding where you're where you're coming from or trying to understand you because they don't think you have any compassion for them. All right. Chris, you got anything to add to, to some of those points?
1: Well, I mean, I think one, that those are really important points for how we need to uh, respond in this situation. I would I would just say that we also have to learn how to organize and and do our politics. Right. Because um, there there are some things that we need to do in uh, legislation, but there's a great deal of creativity. Uh, that we need in our education system right now. I, I would just remind folks that it's not only the, the content of like cultural education and orientation that is at a significant deficit in uh, many of our schools. It's also just the basic quality of the education. I mean, the book learning. Uh, that's taking place. Uh, and so we, we need to be able to, again, not be so reactionary, but to actually step back and try to seek the Lord, um, examine literature, look at history, examine the current context and cast a vision for where we need to be so that we're not always, um, Responding and reacting to something that happens that we think is wrong, but that we have a, a goal in mind, um, a, a vision and a place where we want our education system to to be um, and begin to pursue that. Because if, if we only think in terms of, well, what violates my standard? What is wrong? What should we not do? Um, you always end up reacting. And it's much easier to be uh, painted as, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about, a, a bigot, hateful. You don't care uh, when you're always reacting. Somebody has an idea and then you come to say, well, that's a terrible idea. That yeah, might be a terrible idea, but uh, it would be better if you were already in that space. Advancing good ideas It's a lot more difficult for bad ideas to get in.
0: No, that's good. One thing, and I want to say this directly to folks like us who may be a little more to the left on some issues or maybe more likely to vote for Democrats. And I wanted to speak directly to that group. Do not let anyone on the left or the right (laughs) turn this into a conservative, turn parental rights specifically into a conservative issue. Don't let that happen. You need to look at this like we've been talking about, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, but like a Christian. Parental rights is a very serious issue. And it's one of the reasons why I'm hesitant to tell folks who who are on the other side of this gender identity conversation than me what to do with their kids. Right. I'm, I'm very hesitant to say what you should do with your kid. Those are your kids. Obviously, we don't want abuse, but I'm very hesitant to do that. Do not let anybody turn the parental rights conversation into simply a conservative talking point or conservative platform issue. It's an issue that we all should care about, that we should all be serious about addressing. So I would, in, in addition to what I said earlier, I would make sure that you do your homework, do your best to understand the issue and then bring about awareness. I mean, you know, the teachers in your 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 children's Sunday school class and, you know, and folks, uh, other folks in the church need to know this is an issue. There are some folks in the church that don't know this is an issue going on. The teachers in your church, maybe you should have conversations with the teachers in your church to hear what they have to say about it and what they're thinking and what they know and what they've seen. Right. Or maybe how they would need support. These are ways that we can get engaged without just throwing bombs everywhere. Now, when it comes down to it, it may be something that we do have to tenaciously fight for. And if that's what it is, that's just what it is. I'm not taking that out of the conversation, but that's not the only way to approach a very serious issue. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Look how you had something to say.
1: Uh, no, I mean, I was just uh, really going to say uh, a good amen uh, to all the things that you're talking about. Like That's that's really what it means to be engaged in civics uh, and in politics and and sort of like the the civic life of a community. Uh, we, you know, there's so much effort to flatten things and to make it seem like to be involved in civics and politics is to like, take on the opposition. Like, like that's the heart and soul of it. It's like, take on the other guy. Uh, but that's really not the heart and soul of a healthy democracy and a rich civic life. It is the ability to look at issues, engage in conversations with people, um, and through those efforts get to a better place. And I would just encourage folks that when you do it that way, you actually end up in a better place in terms of uh, the ideas. And you also stand a good chance of ending up in a stronger place in terms of the sort of coalitions and bases of support that you can develop uh, being that way uh, and, and practicing it that way. So I just encourage us Urge us toward that type of engagement and not just take on the other guy, because a lot of the folks who are pushing you to that sort of take on the other guy approach, it's not because they believe in the world that you believe in it's because they profit in various ways from the fight and we can't fall into that
0: trap. That's a word. Well, that is it for us today. We ran out of time, but hopefully we covered that. Well, again, I wanted this to be an issue that we cover again, maybe bring some folks in uh, to have a deeper conversation about the legislation, just as and just the state of sexual ex- education uh, in America right now in general. So that's something we'll be talking about uh, coming up if all goes at planned as planned. But as usual, Ancamp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ancamp, well, I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I say kingdom.